I want to uh, I want to begin this morning by reading a Christmas poem. I think this Christmas poem will reflect a lot of the feelings you are having during this Christmas season. It's actually a very desperate poem. It's written by a man named Jerry Herman. He was a he's actually an immigrant. He's both Russian and Jewish, so you know he's got a lot of deep despair that he can write on page. And so I want to read this, and I'm going to do it kind of in a dramatic fashion. But I think it reflects how we feel during this holiday season. Haul out the holly. Put up the tree before my spirit falls again. Fill up the stocking. I, I may be rushing things, but deck the halls again now. For we need a little Christmas right this very minute. Candles in the windows, carols at the spinet. Yes, we need a little Christmas. Right this very minute. It hasn't snowed a single flurry. Santa, dear, we are in a hurry. So climb down the chimney. Put up the brightest strings of lights I've ever seen. Slice up the fruitcake. It's time. It's time. We hung some tinsel on the evergreen bough. For I've grown a little leaner. I've grown a little colder. I've grown a little sadder. And I'm, I've grown a little older. And I need a little angel sitting on my shoulder. I need, I need a little Christmas now. He goes on to say, it hasn't snowed a single flurry. Santa, dear, we're in a hurry, so climb down the chimney. And listen to this line. It's been a long time since I felt good neighborly. And it ends by saying, right this very minute, we need a little, we need a little, we need a little Christmas now. You might be familiar with that song. Johnny Mathis would sing it. We need a little Christmas now. A little bit happier a little more joyous, but you know, those words get to you, don't they? They just reach you that we need this little Christmas. What does he mean by that? What exactly do we need? I was thinking about, I think what he's saying is we need the Christmas spirit and all of its decoration and smells, sounds, snow, trees. We need the whole, we need the stuff. We need the stuff. And to be honest with you, I relate to this very much. Believe it or not, standing before you is one of the most sentimental people you've ever met when it comes to Christmas. You might not believe it. My wife thinks I'm very German, so I'm not sentimental. But I'm the youngest of six kids to a, with a very close family. And one, one Christmas, all my brothers and sisters were out of town, and they were coming back for the holidays. I was living in Chicago with my mom and dad, and I was driving home from work. And I heard this song on the radio, and it just pierced me to the heart. It's exactly how I felt. It goes like this. Well, there's no place like home for the holidays, for no matter how far away you roam. And then it says this. If you want to be happy in a million ways. And I said, that's it. That's what I want this Christmas. I want to be happy in a million ways. I want Chris candy canes, just red and white. Don't give me the colored stuff. Red and white. I want snowball fights with my sisters. I want to watch all the claymation videos, no matter how stupid they are. I want to watch all of them. 
I want, you know what I want? I want presents stacked to the ceiling. That's really what I want. And I want my dad back. That's what I want. I, I want, I want to be happy in a million ways. That, I think, is what we call the Christmas spirit. That's what we want. But is the Christmas spirit the same thing as the spirit of Christ? Sometimes I think we mix it up a little bit. Today we're going to talk about the Spirit of Christ and how it's different than the Spirit of Christmas. We are on our second week of the Trinity. So remember, this, is, this represents the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Last week we talked about the Father. This week we're talking about the Spirit. If you can, open up to Psalm chapter 2, and this is the passage we are using as the platform to talk about Christmas from God's point of view. And today we're going to talk about the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of Christ. So if you could open up the Psalm 2, we'll go through it and work our way through it so we can figure out how, how is the Spirit of Christ active in Christmas. It begins in verse 1 and it says, Why do the nations rage? The peoples of the earth, they plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves. And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits on the heavens laughs. As you remember last week, we said, for Christmas, we, we think Christmas starts at a silent night, a holy night. But for God, Christmas starts in a world that's on fire. If you remember last week, we said the nations are angry. They're actually rebellious. They want to break off God's bonds. And while he's sitting in heaven, he looks down and he laughs because he's like, first of all, you don't have the ability to break. You really can't challenge me. But secondly, he has a plan in store. And if you keep reading, he says he'll speak to them in his wrath. That's verse 5. Terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So the reason why he laughs is because he's got an answer for the fury of man. He's going to bring his king to bring peace on this earth. That's why Christmas began, because the world needed an answer to our rebellion, our fury, our anger. So we said last week, verse 7 was the God, God the Father's work. He gave a decree. It says, I'll tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, Today I have begotten you. If you remember, we used Ephesians 1 to say, this decree is a promise that he planned in eternity past. Before, before mankind was made, he, he gave a promise. His promise was motivated out of love. His promise was he's going to send a human being, and this human being is going to unite heaven and earth. That's what we said last week. Then we come to verse 8. Verse 8 is the continuation of the decree, and it says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage. Some verses say, I'll make the nations your inheritance. In the ends of the earth, your possession. I want us to focus on that, and that's where we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. This is going to be our launching pad. When you look at that verse, some people, some scholars actually say, this is the voice of the Holy Spirit. I still go with the majority scholars who say it's still the Father's decree and it's the goal of the Father is he is going to give to the Son 
the king, all of the nations of the earth and peoples as his gift, his inheritance. They're going to be gathered together and given to him, his possession. Now what does the Holy Spirit have to do with this? Well, honestly, everything. The Spirit of God, the second person of the Trinity, in a sense has been tasked out by God to make the arrangements for this to happen. The best way to put it, if you can think metaphorically, the Holy Spirit is the great wedding planner of life. What does a wedding planner do? A wedding planner works behind the scenes to get the bride and the groom to get married at a beautiful location so everything works out perfectly. The Holy Spirit is the wedding planner. He is preparing a bride for the groom, and this bride is people from all over the earth. And he's going to make all the arrangements. He's going to set up the time and location where it's going to happen. He is going to send out the invitations. He's actually going to use people to send out invitations. He's going to call people to read the invitation, and he's going to move people to receive the invitations. He is gathering the inheritance for the groom, the bride. He's the great wedding planner. And what we're going to talk about today are the two ways he does it. He does it on a large scale, and he does it on a very personal scale. We're going to begin on a large scale. How does the Holy Spirit make all the arrangements to bring the bride to the groom on a large scale? He does it in prophetic history. He uses prophetic history to call people to the Son. In a sense, God is always working. He's been always working in eternity past, and he's still working in the future. God, the Holy Spirit, is in the, in the roots of history. He's the one working it all out. Deep soil events are his events. And the first way he does this is through foretelling. Foretelling is the first work of the Holy Spirit. What is foretelling? To declare ahead of time what's taken place, what's going to take place. That's what prophecy means, to foretell. It can also mean foretell, but in the case of the Holy Spirit, he's the foreteller. He is the one who's letting the world know what's going to happen, when the, when the groom's going to show up, where we can find him, how we know it's him. I want you to go to 1 Peter chapter 1. This is one of my favorite passages about the work of the Holy Spirit in prophetic history. 1 Peter chapter 1. And that's good, good vintage water. It's from the sinks of Kent City Kitchen. You don't get any better than that, Charlene. It's good stuff. 1 Peter chapter 1. I want you to look at verses 10 through 11. Verse 9 is talking about our salvation, our deliverance. And in verse 10, it says, concerning this salvation, this deliverance, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and they inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit 
sent from heaven things into which the angels long to look. This says, there's a lot in here. But simply, simply stated, here's what he's saying. The prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ is how it's defined in there. They were moved to write down about a man who would come to suffer and to bring us to glory. As these, as these prophets were writing, they had no idea who they were writing about. Like they didn't know specifically, but they just knew that they had to write it. And it says while they were writing it, the angels were looking over their shoulder and they were wondering, wow, I don't get it, but man, who, this is exciting. But even better than that, the prophets knew they were writing for you because they knew you would get it. Who are the prophets? Let me just give you a couple. Isaiah. Isaiah has written about the coming of the king so many times, but the, the, one of my favorites when it talks about Christmas is Isaiah 9, 6. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. His name will be Wonderful, Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Though this child that is born, who's given, is going to have the title Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. Isaiah wrote that 700 years before a baby appeared in the manger in Bethlehem. 700 years before. Do you think Isaiah knew who he's, who he's writing about? I, I just think he wrote that. He says, man, that's some beautiful poetry. I have no idea what I'm writing, but man, I can't wait to see how it works itself out. Jeremiah chapter 23. This is personally my favorite messianic verse. A messianic verse means a prophecy about the coming king. Jeremiah 23.5 says, out of really the branch of David, out of root of David, is going to come a ruler who's going to bring peace and save Israel. And it says, you know what his name is going to be? Jehovah, our righteousness. So a king is going to have a name called Jehovah, our righteousness. Man, that's blasphemous. But it's true. I want you to go to Micah 5.2. The Holy Spirit wrote through this minor prophet. Micah is a little bit after the major prophets. You'll find him right in the middle of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. And I want you to go to Micah 5.2-5. through 5. This is the Holy Spirit, the wedding planner, telling us the location where the groom himself will be born. Micah 5.2 says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, it's interesting, Bethlehem means house of bread. That's what the, the term Bethlehem means. Did you know the bread of life was born in the house of bread? But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, I just heard on the radio what's interesting is this baby that was born, he was born in a manger. A manger is where you eat food, and he's going to be the food that we all eat. I don't, I don't know how far I take that, find it interesting. Anyhow, let's keep reading. You, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler of Israel. So he's a king. He's a Messiah. This is the guy that God said in Psalm 2, I'm going to set him up on, my, on the mountains of Zion. He's, his coming forth is from old, from ancient days. So he was planned before time. It's an eternal statement. Verse 3, Therefore he shall give them up until the time 
when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. They shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. He shall be their peace. Last week we said he's going to bring peace from heaven to earth. He's, we just read today he is going to inherit the nations of the earth. It says here, they shall dwell, um, he shall be great to the ends of the earth. It's inter- isn't it funny how the Bible kind of, it's like a hologram. It all fits together. But this is a prophecy about 650 years before a baby was ever born in Bethlehem. That's his work in foretelling. Now, not only does he foretell, but he fulfills what he foretold. So if he promised it, he is going to make sure it will come true. So the Holy Spirit is also the acting and causing agent behind the scenes. What he promises, he personally makes sure it will come to pass. Go to the book of Luke. We're going to stay in the book of Luke the rest of the message. Luke chapter 1. So remember, we're, we just read a baby's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. So sure enough, Luke chapter 1, there's a lady and a man, Mary and Joseph, they go to Bethlehem because they have to register. But right before they go to Bethlehem, Mary is visited by an angel, and the angel said, you are going to have a child, and he will be the most high. And if you look in Luke 1.34, Mary said to the angel, come on, this is, this is my version, come on, man, I'm, I'm a virgin. I haven't been with anybody. I understand biology, I get it. I get it. And so what he says in verse 35 is the angel answered her. Look at how he, what he, who he says the causing agent of the fulfillment of prophecy is. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So the Holy Spirit, through prophets, prophesied a holy child to be born in Bethlehem and then the Holy Spirit is the one that came and overshadowed Mary and fertilized her egg in her womb. And so this child that's going to be born is going to be fully man out of her body and fully God out of the Spirit's power. He fulfilled it. It's funny how we as human beings are, especially during Christmas, we're victims of the moment. We... We're worried that the success of things are always up to us. And if things, we just have to work and strive and try to get everything to work. If we don't do something, everything's going to fall apart. And if we don't do something, this random, meaningless world will just take over. So we have to continually make order out of chaos. But Psalm 139.8 says, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I free from your presence? In other words, God is here. He's at work all the time, fulfilling the will of the Father. And so we have to be very careful to be so worried that we forget he's at work. I read an article that says worry takes at least five years off your life, at least. The amount of time, the amount of sleep you avoid from worry or from not doing other things because you're worrying. 
The Spirit's there. He's real. He's working behind the scenes to make sure God is working all things together for good to those who love him. He gave that promise. Don't you think he'll fulfill it? He did for Mary. Some of you are saying, yeah, but Christmas isn't what it used to be. I'm missing my family. My health isn't what it was. Everybody moved out. I'm a, I've got an empty nest. It's just not Christmas anymore. And so there's this melancholy to Christmas where, where it says 45%, I read a, a statistic, 45% of people dread Christmas. They dread it. But God is alive. And if God is alive, which he is, there is always hope. There's always hope. Look at what Jesus says in John 16. I want, you to, I want to put this up because it's talking about Jesus is getting ready to leave and his disciples are scared to death. They are anxious. Things aren't going to be the way they were for the last three and a half years. And he says, look, it's good that I go because I'm going to send a counselor to you. And when he comes, he will come to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But if you, I just want you to focus on that word convict. What does that mean? He's going to make people aware of the presence of God, specifically the guilt before him. Some um, scholars believe the word should be translated as convince. Convince means to persuade people to the reality of God. What this is saying is he's always at work opening our eyes to God's action around us. Always. Not only is he working on this grand scale, but to me he's existentially working. I love that word existential. It sounds cool when you say it. But it also means in the moment, in the tiny second of the present, he's here working all the time. And you know where he's working? In people's hearts. That's the second place he works. In people's hearts. Inside us. I'm convinced that everyone, everyone who has ever accepted Christ as the Son of God, who really has recognized that he really was born in Bethlehem, they weren't convinced through some fine-sounding argument or some apologetic method or because some, they were out-reasoned by somebody else. I believe we are convinced when the Holy Spirit opens our eyes. We, we want to argue things. Why don't we pray more for people to be confronted by the Holy Spirit and let him do it? Yes, we have to speak the word of God, absolutely, but it's not us doing it. I once had a class with a preaching teacher said, here's what I want us to do. We're going to go out to the cemetery. We're going to line up in front of all the gravestones, and we're going to preach to them and give them your best sermon. Give them your best sermon and the students are like, that's stupid. They're dead. He said, exactly. We're dead until the Spirit makes us alive. And when he makes us alive, three things happen. The first thing is we get awakened in heart. And by use heart in the sense of our soul, it's like sparked. It becomes alive. Look at Luke 141. This is Elizabeth. Elizabeth is Mary's cousin. This is cool. 41, Mary just was visited by the angel. She's pregnant with the Savior. She goes to visit Elizabeth, who's pregnant with John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. 
Verse 41 says, And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women! Like a loud cry, it's not, Blessed all you among women, and blessed... Whoa! Blessed are you among women! You're here! Can't believe it. And blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. I think when the Spirit of God enters a life, first of all, you wake up and there is a, there's a new, there's what's called this underlying joy. There's a new emotion, a new hope. Is clearly in, the, in John the Baptist as a baby, his he left in the womb. But the second thing about an awakened heart is you start being sensitive to the presence of God in your life. Look at what Mary says in verse 30, 43. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She wasn't just excited that Mary came. She's excited that Mary brought the Lord with her. And she, the Spirit of God made her aware of that. When you become aware of when, you, when the Holy Spirit enters your life, you start becoming aware of God all over the place. It's weird. I don't know how to explain it. And then the third thing, when, the, when you're awakened in heart, is there's this new humility. Look at what she says, and why is this granted to me that the mother might? I don't deserve this. This is amazing. It's funny. I... I've told you this often, for 23 years of my life, I was a religious person. I would, truthfully, the Christmas story, I liked it, but it had just as much clout to me as Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. It just did. It was part of Christmas. It was kind of, Chris, the, the story of Jesus in the manger was, yeah, I know, I've heard that. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard that story. It was muted, sort of. Like C.S. Lewis, is like a great shadow land. But then when the Spirit of God started working on me, and it was the, really it was in November of my 23rd year, I came to know the Lord. I can remember going to Christmas that season, and I heard the story different. That boy is, was for me. This is, an, this, is an amazing, this is an amazing story. That a virgin would give birth? I became awakened, and I saw things different. And so the second thing that happens to you is you become, your mind starts working. You start understanding the Word of God. Look at Zechariah in chapter 1, verse 67. Zechariah is Elizabeth's husband. John the Baptist was born. There's a whole funny story with that. You can read it later. But then, when the whole, watch what happens when the Holy Spirit comes upon him in verse 67. And the, his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he's visited and redeemed his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old. He's going on and on from verses 68 to 79. He uses no less than 20 Old Testament references. But they're not just Old Testament references. He sees the Bible as being specifically fulfilled in his life. When the Holy Spirit comes in your life, you start seeing this word as your, it becomes true. You're enlightened in your mind. This, there's this whole teaching of meditation is this idea of, 
of emptying your mind and just becoming one with whatever there is. Some, it, that's not biblical meditation. Biblical meditation is I meditate on the truth of God and I start understanding it to be true. And not just truly true, but it's my truth. The more you come to Christ, you don't doubt more. You're convinced more. There's this strange teaching in our day and age, in our current American culture, the truest Christian is the one who doubts the most. No, no, no! The truest Christian is the one who meditates on this and says, that's true! You become enlightened because the Spirit of God wants you to know the truth. Read 1 John, that's what it's all about. And then the third thing, and this is what the Holy Spirit has been tasked out to do by the Father, is to draw people to the groom. Look at what happens to Simeon in Luke 2.25. Luke 2.25. So Jesus is born. They go to the temple in Jerusalem. It's eight days later because they got to purify Jesus according to the law of Moses and circumcise him at the, at the temple. And in verse 25, as they were going to present some turtle doves for a sacrifice, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous. He was devout. means he loved God. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, the promises of Israel to come true. And, and the Holy Spirit was on him. Let's see what happens that the Holy Spirit's on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came to the Spirit into the temple and when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him according to the customs of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God. And he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. He's saying, I am content because I got to see the one that I've been waiting for my whole life. When the Holy Spirit enters your life, he is the only one you want. He is. He's everything. Why? Because the Spirit's job is to bring the bride to the bridegroom. And we are the bride. As the wedding planner, he knows he is not the one the bride should be enthralled with. It's the groom. The statement, we have this big statement out by Christians now. We're, we're, we need to talk more about the Holy Spirit. We're, people are scared of the Holy Spirit. We need to bring them up more. This has really confused me because isn't the Spirit's role to want me to want more of Jesus and talk more about him? In the book of John, Jesus says this, verse six, chapter 16, verse 4. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will glorify me. Meaning, when the Holy Spirit comes, his job is to make Jesus huge. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. When you came to church, how come, how come you didn't sit down, turn your chairs around, and stare at all the people working the background, uh, you know, the slideshow, see Cher doing the music? Take a look and watch them back there. Go ahead, look back at, watch it, Cher doing back there. She's like, no, don't look at me. Don't look at me. Look at the true star. Look up at Chris, up at there. No, I'm kidding. God, I'm sorry. I don't mean that. The Holy Spirit is working behind the scenes so you will focus on Jesus. 
Do you want to know, it's, it's, this is, in my personal belief, do you want to know the Spirit's, um, if you, I think the purest voice of the Spirit is found in Psalm 45, verses 10 and 11. Turn to it. If you want to know what the Spirit, if you could just talk to the Spirit directly, what do you want, Holy Spirit? Really, what do you want? And I think this is the Spirit's voice in concentrated form. Psalm 45, 10 and 11. Psalm 45 is a wedding psalm, believe it or not, about a king. And it's a messianic psalm because it's quoted in the book of Hebrews three times. So that means it's really about Jesus. So you have verse 10. It's kind of like the crescendo of the, the song. It's the climax. It says, Hear, O daughter, consider. And he's talking to the bride. Consider and give ear. Forget your people and your father's house. The ESV says, and the king will desire your beauty. The NIV says, because the king is enthralled by your beauty. And then it says, since he's your Lord, bow to him. That's what the Holy Spirit wants. He wants people from all over the world to leave their people in their father's house and come to the king because the king's in love with you. And he wants you to bow to him, to pay him honor, loyalty, and give him everything, because he's your Lord. This is the true spirit of Christmas. I just want to ask you a question. I have a little chart up here. What are you more moved by this Christmas? Are you more moved by the spirit of Christmas or the spirit of Christ? Uh-oh, that one came out early. It shouldn't have came out early. Don't worry about it. We'll get to it. So ask yourself, what are you more moved by, the spirit of Christmas or the spirit of Christ? And I'm just going to give you some general observations as I was meditating on it. You can tell you're more moved by the spirit of Christ when what moves your heart or what really compels you are the five senses. Sights, sounds, smells, feelings. Or does the word of God, the truth of what happened in the worship, when we together as one lift his name up, what really moves you? It's not that the five senses are in bad and of themselves, but when you put the word and worship priority, actually all the other things start falling into place instead of overwhelming you. Which comes to the next point. How can you tell what, what characterizes you during Christmas time? When, you're, when you are more into the spirit of Christmas, you're kind of, for everything's got to work out or everything falls, this just was a terrible Christmas because things didn't go this way. It's kind of fragile. You better have the right people, the right food, the right sounds, the right colors, the right color candy canes. If you don't, it's just not Christmas. It's a fragile Christmas. It's easily, it's like, what is that Mary Poppins promise? It's like a pie crust. It's easily made, easily broken. Something, Isn't it? Right, Kim? Something like that? Kim, you should know that. You've, you've seen Mary Poppins, right? I, yeah. I was, I was hoping, I, you know, I was banking on you. No. 
But if you are really wanting the Spirit of Christ, there's a solidity. You're solid. You're standing on solid ground. Truthfully, I miss my dad. It's been a long time. My dad made Christmas fun. My dad was fun. And I'm telling you, I miss him. Because he thinks he's, he thought he was like uh, Tony, um, oh, not, not Frank Sinatra, but the, this t- Tony, what, what's it? Tony Bennett. He thought he was Tony Bennett. And he would always be, he, he's the one that would say, well, there's no place like home. You know, he'd walk in the door and he'd go, have a holly jolly. You know, like, Dad, I've had enough of that, but I miss that, you know. But I don't, because he's gone, my Christmas aren't spoiled, actually. They're more solid because I can't wait to see him. I think sometimes our, our Christmases are so fragile when people leave that we just, we aren't going to have fun anymore. It's just not going to be the same. It's never going to be the same. Then to me, you don't believe the Holy Spirit's still at work and can take all things and make it different. And then so the focus is on your expectations being met when it's the spirit of Christmas, but your focus is your, the spirit of Christ or his promises to come. We aren't given guarantee that this world's going to be great. We're, we are to use this holiday to point people to Christ. And then so what do you want more of during this Christmas season? I think for the person who wants the spirit of Christmas, they just want more stuff, more things, more feelings. The person who really wants the Spirit of Christ, they want his name to really be glorified in their friends' name, in their friends' hearts, in their kids' hearts, in their own hearts. And so I'd ask you this final question. What do you want more of this Christmas? And I, I might have told you this. I, I'm a, uh, I try to evaluate my sermons. I want to evaluate my sermons because I want to make sure I'm connecting. And so in the past, I would... I would think, you know, you know how you tell if you had a good sermon? People come up to you and they say, good sermon, good sermon. And I realized I, some of my worst ones, people would say, good sermon, and they wouldn't even hear what I'd say. So I realized it's, this applause, it's a tyranny. It's called the applause tyranny. You're kind of fighting for applause. Then I read this book where this guy got done preaching, and it just said, after he's done preaching, people wanted more. They wanted more. And then he said, those who were righteous wanted more righteousness. Those who were far from God hated him even more. And I'm thinking, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. It's funny, last week, I didn't think I did that good a job presenting, but people who listened to what Psalm 2 said came up and said, that makes sense. The scriptures made sense. Yes, that's it. It's the, that's the underlying story. It's not the outside stuff. It's not the stuff that makes me feel and look good. It's the stuff that's truly true. Is that what you want this Christmas? If you do, then you know the spirit of Christ is alive in you. If you just want the feeling, the five senses to be touched, go listen to Johnny Mathis. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the work of your Spirit who's alive and well in our hearts. For those of us who believe, I know some of us, God, we, um, I think some, some people in here, they come, come to church during Christmas because they're supposed to, or 
it feels good and it's the right thing to do, but I pray that your spirit, who is actively wooing us to the, to the groom, would get a hold of those hearts and say, this is about Jesus. Thank you for um, how all your scriptures fit together, God. I thank you for that. And Holy Spirit, I, I thank you for your humility. I really do. I thank you uh, that you want Jesus to get all the glory. I, to me, that's an incredible example of your, your heart, God. I thank you that you're humble. Thank you for all that you do for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.